We're continuing a series we've called Forgiven and Free. That's the good news of Jesus, isn't it? We are forgiven and we are free. And I don't know about you, but that's not often where I live. I don't often live as one who has been forgiven. I don't always live as one who is free. So before we continue engaging God's word this morning, I want to tell you a little bit of my own personal story. Is that okay? We've had a lot of really, really great stuff happening in our worship service this morning, and I think we've got time for a little bit of a sermon. I'll try to make it quick, but (laughs) you know how challenging that is for me. Let me start here. I was born at a very young age. It's a very challenging season, a very difficult way to begin life. That's me, my radio flyer. It's been all downhill since then. I was pretty cute, but can't remember a thing from that earliest season of life. I've kind of blocked it out of my memory because it was so tough. But even as young as I was, I, even as young as I was when my story started, my story started before I did, right? We know this, of course. I wasn't dropped off by a stork in the Central Valley of California. If I was, I would have said to the stork, hey, maybe take me a little further south. Beverly Hills sounds nice, right? My story begins with my parents. There's mom and dad, older brother Jeff. I think we've got one more here. There they are. David and Donna. See, just as my story doesn't begin with myself but with my parents, um, their story doesn't begin with themselves but with their parents. And on and on we go, further and further back into history. This is true for all of us. Our story predates us. Our story begins before we do. That's why those scriptures include those long list of names. Have you ever encountered those before? I guarantee you've seen them if you have committed some January 1st to read the Bible in a year. And if you made it through the first few weeks, you encountered a book called Numbers. And if you made it through numbers, gold star for you. Well done. Because it is a long list of names, a long list of genealogies. But even if we aren't experts in the genealogies of Scripture, trying to understand where someone came from, the story that began before they do, even if we aren't experts in the genealogies of Scripture, how many of us have logged on to Ancestry.com? How many of us have sent in our test samples to 23andMe? You see, our doing so signals our desire to know ourselves, right? To know who we are, to know our story. We know that our story begins before we do. My mom is the history buff of our family. She has traced our lineage all the way back, all the way back through the generations to a man named Miles Standish. Now, Miles Standish, my great ancestor, has his own Wikipedia page. You see the resemblance? (laughs) I'm not sure if maybe he hurt his neck or something. Maybe, I'm not sure. There's kind of a brace there. Anyway, Miles Standish was an English military officer hired by the Plymouth Colony to accompany pilgrims to America aboard the Mayflower. Miles Standish. See, here's why Ancestry.com, here's why 23andMe, here's why those scriptures include those long list of genealogies when papyrus wasn't cheap. Knowing our history reveals who we are. Our stories begin before we do. And, and if we think about it long enough, 
And if we're honest enough, our stories may often reveal why we don't feel forgiven and free. We engage similar territory this morning in Paul's letter to the Galatians. Paul logs on to Ancestry.com. He, he sends his test sample into 23andMe to help us understand our family history. To help us understand our genealogy so that we might live a whole new kind of life. So that we might live forgiven and free. Let me pray for us and then we'll hear from God's word. Father, open our eyes and our ears to the story you are writing amongst us to the story that predates us, so that we might hear and that we might know who it is that we are. The world in which we live will give us all kinds of different stories about who we are, about where we came from. May we learn it from you. May these not simply be words that we hear, words that we read. May these be the words that bringeth everlasting life, O oh God. Amen. Paul writes in Galatians 4, beginning in verse 21, Tell me, tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? Paul is trying to take their own argument and turn it back around on them and convince them that he's right. He's been doing this constantly through Galatians, hasn't he? He has one main point, and he keeps circling back to it. You've heard sermons like this before, right? <laughs> the preacher has one thing to say, and he just says it 25 times. I apologize. Hopefully this one won't be the same. But tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born in the ordinary way, but his son by the free woman was born as the result, what's the word? Of a promise. Result of a promise. These things may be taken figuratively. For the woman represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now Hagar stands in Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. Remember in the first century what people had to do when they went to Jerusalem for a festival or to visit the temple. Remember what they would have to do. Every time they would visit that temple, there were certain places that they could go in the temple and certain places they could not go in the temple. There were all kinds of walls in that temple, remember? There was the court of the Gentiles where someone who was not Jewish could enter. Then there was the court of women, where Jewish women could enter. And then there was the court of Jewish men could enter. Inside that was the holiest of holies, where only the priests could enter, and only one day out of the year. But every time they went to the temple, a Jewish pilgrim would have to take something. What would they take? They would take an unblemished lamb to be sacrificed. And so Paul says, listen, th there are two covenants. There is one covenant that, that makes us into slaves, that we have to follow all the rites and rituals and rules and regulations. We have to keep taking that unblemished, spotless lamb to the temple to know that we are right with God. But the Jerusalem that is above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, be glad, O barren woman who bears no children, break forth and cry aloud, you who have no labor pains, because more are the children of the desolate woman 
than of her who has a husband. Paul quoting here from Isaiah chapter 54. Paul quoting from the great prophet that a barren woman, a woman who is unable to conceive, should break forth in song and rejoicing. Because by God's grace, she will become the mother of more than those who have a husband. Now, you, like Isaac, are children of promise. At that time, the son born in the ordinary way persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit. It's the same now. But what does the Scripture say? Again, Paul has a difficult thing to say to the Galatians, and so he doesn't say it himself. He quotes someone else to say the difficult thing. He quotes from the Scriptures. Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. And it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Now, this is one of those passages that can be a little bit difficult for us to understand. Um, one of my commentaries, you know, a, a biblical commentary engages the original languages uh, that something was written in, Greek or, or Hebrew or Aramaic. Um, it engages the historical context of what's happening behind the scenes of the words written. One of my commentaries on the book of Galatians completely skips these verses. Completely skips it. Doesn't even mention, hey, by the way, we're going to skip these verses. It's like they don't even exist to the authors of this commentary. Why? Well, because it's, it's too difficult to engage. There's too much going on to try to understand. So I want to be really clear here. Here's the point. There's the point to these verses. We are forgiven and free because we are members of the family of God. We are forgiven and free because we are now members of God's family. Throughout the Christian scriptures, there are various theological words used. You've heard some of them, no doubt. There is salvation, that we have been saved from our sins, right? There is justification, that is that we've been made right with God. That when God looks at us, he doesn't see all the things that we've done. He doesn't see our, our past. He doesn't see our history. God sees us through the lens of Jesus. So, so we're saved and we're, and we're justified. And then there's another theological word. There's, um, there's being sanctified, right? That over time, God is making us more and more like Jesus, right? You've heard these words before, yes? Salvation justification, sanctification, and Paul adds a whole new theological concept here in the book of Galatians. Paul wants us to understand not only salvation and, and justification and sanctification, Paul wants us to understand adoption. He looks back on this story from Genesis 16 to, 25, to, to 21 to tell us that we are adopted. You see, it's one thing to be saved it's another thing to be justified. It's another thing to be sanctified. But being welcomed home into the family of God is the highlight, is the high point of what Jesus has done for us. Uh, the great uh, J.I. Packer once put it this way. He said, adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers. Adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers. Remember, the Galatians are being told that belief in Jesus, faith in Jesus, is not enough. They also need to follow all the rites and rituals, all the rules and regulations of religion. They still need to go to Jerusalem with that unblemished lamb. That's what they're being told. 
And Paul wants to fight back on that impulse. He says that in obeying all those rites and rituals, all those rules and regulations, and in relying on them, you're believing the wrong story about your history. You're believing the wrong thing about who your mother is. So Paul retells this story from Genesis 16 through 21. You remember Father Abraham, many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. It all started, yes, I am one of them, and yes, thank you, I'm sorry, I cut the song off short. It all started, uh, though, very differently. You see, God promised Abram and his wife Sarah that they would be parents of a great nation, but there's a problem. We remember the story. They're getting a little bit older, and they're thinking, I don't know if we can believe this story. I don't know if God's promise will actually come to pass. They're past childbearing age. So, in something that was culturally acceptable, but disbelieved God's promise, Sarah encouraged Abraham to try to have children with their servant, Hagar. Now, again, culturally, this was acceptable, though we might look back on it and think, well, that's a little bit weird. But here's the problem. He, he does, and what makes it worse is that it worked. Hagar gives birth to a son and names him Ishmael. But then, as you might imagine, Sarah and Hagar um, experience a little bit of tension in their relationship, <laughs> as you might imagine, yes? Anyone who has told you that the Bible is boring has not read Genesis 16 to 21. <laughs> it reads like an episode of Mori Povich, I'm telling you. And later, despite their disbelief, despite their impatience, God stays true to his word. Our inability to believe the promise doesn't make the promise come untrue. God stays true to his word, gives Abram and Sarah a son, and they name him Isaac. Isaac meant laughter, right? Because Sarah laughed at the idea that God would give them a child in their old age. You see, in these verses, Paul logs on to Ancestry.com, he tends his, sends his test sample into 23andMe, and he wants to point out how the Galatians' lineage is not through Hagar, but through Sarah. Not through disbelief, not through impatience, not through taking matters into your own hands and making something happen. He says, no, your adoption into the family of God is because of a promise. Now, I quite like representing things graphically, helps me understand them. I'm, I'm a big fan of Venn diagrams. Any Venn diagram fans here? Yes? Thank you, Anne. I see. Okay, so two of us. So this is one of my favorite Venn diagrams in the world. It, uh, Venn diagrams, bank robbers, DJs, preachers, and mom taking off your sweater. Hang with me here. These are all the things that different people will say, bank robbers and DJs and preachers and mom taking off your sweater. For instance, mom taking off your sweater and preachers have in common that they will say, I'm in the lower right here, as God is my witness. <laughs> Ever heard a mom say something like that before? <laughs> right? Preachers, same, yeah. But moms have in common with bank robbers, I'm not asking twice. <laughs> Again, one of my favorites. Now, bank robbers and DJs are similar in that they will declare to everyone, everyone on the floor, right, for very different reasons. The one thing all four of them have in common is put your hands in the air, right? <laughs> anyway, I can send you this later. It's, uh, it's, it'll, it's just wonderful. I, I have it um, framed in my office and in my home. I just, I, I just gaze upon it through the day, every day. But this isn't exactly what Paul is getting at in Galatians 4. There's a different one. 
Paul uses a kind of quadrant in, in a way to try to explain to us. I think we have it here. Um, the difference between the Galatians acting the way that they've been acting and the, what he wants to call them to. He says there is both obeying what the scriptures tell us, and then there's relying upon what the scriptures tell us. There's obeying, and then there's relying. So we've got obey at the top of the quadrant and not obey at the bottom, and then, and then rely at the right and not rely on the left. Think about it this way. If you obey everything the Bible teaches in that top right, and you rely upon your ability to obey everything the Bible teaches, first of all, you're lying, right? Nobody can obey all of the Bible, what the Bible teaches, and nobody can rely upon their own performance and ability to do so. This is like the Pharisees of Jesus' day, right? They are convinced that they have everything figured out, and they obey the letter of the law to a T. Have you ever known someone like this? Philip Yancey tells a story in one of his books about a woman in the church he grew up in who claimed she hadn't sinned for 12 years. And right there, I mean, she's lying, right? There's no way. This is the Pharisees of Jesus' day, or this is the kid at the sleepover who announces to everybody at midnight that it's tomorrow already, right? People who, let's bring it back up there if we can. Um, they, they're obeying, right, and relying upon their performance. Now, in the bottom right, we have people who are relying upon what the Bible teaches, but they're not obeying it. Um, this is, you're going to find someone who's much humbler about things here, but they're also going to feel more guilt-ridden because they have a standard that they're relying on, but they recognize they can't live up to it. In the lower left are people who ignore what Scripture teaches, and they live however they want, totally relativistic, nothing matters, live and let live, Right? I won't ask for a show of hands if you know anybody like this. This is the people that we're praying for, right? Top left, though, the top left are people who obey what Scripture teaches, but they aren't relying upon their performance for their salvation, for their justification, for their sanctification, for their adoption. Why? Well, on the top left are those who obey God out of a grateful joy that comes from the knowledge of being adopted. People in the top left know they are forgiven and they are free. And so they're more tolerant than those in the lower left. They're, they're more confident than those in the lower right. They're more sympathetic than those in the top right who think they've got it all figured out. I don't know about you, but being more tolerant and, and more confident and more sympathetic, feeling more forgiven and free sounds pretty good to me. And the only way that we live in that top left is if we recognize our adoption into God's family. We can only live there if we realize that we are children of the promise. And that's where we're called to live, in that top left quadrant. Not relying on our own performance, but obeying because of what God has done for us in Jesus. Back in 1960, there was a, a children's book that was published uh, by the name uh, of Are You My Mother? Anybody ever read this one before? Are You My Mother? Tells the story of a baby bird who catches, hatches while its mother is away finding food. It's terrified, right? So can't yet fly, but the baby bird goes on an adventure. He asks the, the kitten and the hen and the dog and the cow, Are You My Mother? Right? He asks a car and a boat and a plane and at last an excavator, are you my mother? And not to ruin the surprise, but none of them are. <laughs> and this is the question that the Galatians are asking. Who is my mother? Who is my mother? This is the question we all ask as we log into Ancestry.com or 23andMe. Are you my mother? Is my mother 
Sarah or, or is my mother Hagar? Because our story begins before we do. And knowing our family history helps us keep from repeating it. That's why the Bible tells us that the sins of the father are passed down to the third and the fourth generation. That's what it means. That, that we learn how to live in the family in which we were raised. And if we're not careful, we will continue to repeat it. Sins of the father are passed down to the third and the fourth generation. If we aren't careful, we, we rehearse and we repeat what we've experienced. I've heard it put this way. I like this. Um, Jesus may live in our hearts, but grandpa lives in our bones. There's a, another kind of um, uh, Venn diagram-like thing, quadrant-like thing that I've found really helpful in my own spiritual life to understand a little bit about who lives in my bones. It's called a genogram. If you've ever um, taken part in, in using a genogram, uh, you know how powerful it can be. Where we can write out our own family history, just like we see in Numbers, just like we see on Ancestry.com, and we look at the, the spiritual lives of those who have gone before us. We look at our siblings and, and our parents and our grandparents. And, and if we know enough, we go as far back as we can. And, and if we have the eyes to see and the ears to hear, we begin to see patterns of the spiritual lives, of, of the hurts and the habits and the hang-ups of our families decades and generations before. We begin to document the dynamics of our family history. We can see the long shadows that have been cast over us. One of the stories that's told in my family is about my grandfather. My grandfather's name is Andro, A-N-D-R-O. His family immigrated from what is now the former Yugoslavia in the early 1900s. Andro cast a long shadow over the Bronzen family because of what a larger-than-life figure he was. And not larger-than-life in, in that he was the kind of guy who'd come up and stand up here and stand really tall and talk for a long time like his grandson. No, 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 no. <laughs> Andro was larger-than-life in a different way, and a reason that a number of us have named our sons after him. My son is Moses Andro Bronson. See, um, my grandfather, Andro, uh, went to school through the eighth grade, 12 years old, and then that was enough schooling, his parents were convinced. As an immigrant family, they needed his work out in the fields, out on the farm. And so he went to work out in the fields and out on the farm, day in and day out. No more school, no ninth grade, nothing else. He was working. He was out there in the fields and on the farm. But Andro, my grandfather, he worked hard. He worked diligently, sun up to sundown. And over time, Andro worked his way up. Ultimately, Andrew had um, five different John Deere and international tractor facilities where, where he was selling tractors all up and down the Central Valley of California. In uh, our little community, people knew Andrew's name. My dad sometimes jokes that around our hometown, he's either Andrew's son or Curtis's dad. <laughs> he's a little frustrated about that, I think. He's also exaggerating, but... Now, Andrew, um, over time, while he had all these John Deere and international tractor uh, locations, um, he, he, he wanted to move out of our little town of Visalia up into the foothills, a little town called Three Rivers, on the way to the Sequoia National Park. 
and he bought a, a mountain there, and, and he wanted to put a house on the mountain. On one side of the mountain, it looks down into the Central Valley, and on the other side, it looks into the Sequoia National Park, and you've got about 300-degree views all around that house. And so he wanted to build a house that was just full of windows, and you could see that 360 degrees. But to do that, he needed a road that got to the top of the hill. Now, if you knew Andrew, you would know he's not hiring anybody to build that road. And so every night, for years, Andrew would come home from work, five, six o'clock. He'd have dinner with his young family. He'd stay there for a couple hours. He'd kiss them goodnight, and then he would drive half an hour, 40, 45 minutes, up into the foothills, and he would get on his tractor. And from about eight or nine o'clock through till about two o'clock in the morning, Andrew would chip away at that hill. And after a couple of years, he built a road to the top of that mountain, and then he built that house. He's a hardworking guy. He'd get about three or four hours of sleep a night, and that was enough because he was so driven, because he was so hardworking. Maybe one of my favorite stories about my grandfather, however, is um, when he was in his mid-80s, he was still running the company, and uh, he needed to conduct an interview. There was a new position to be hired. And my grandfather slipped in the shower and fell and broke his hip. And, but instead of canceling the interview and going to the hospital, he called my brother, and he had my brother and one of his friends come over on into the bathroom and to lift him up and plop him onto his bed, and he conducted the interview from his bed with a broken hip. And then he had some more work to do, and so he went to get that hip fixed in the hospital the next day. There's too much to be done. Now, these are the kind of stories that we tell about, Andrew. These are the kinds of things that we think about when I would diagram my family history on a genogram. When I think about my story beginning before I did, I think of Andrew. But here's the problem. The story that we tell is a story of hard work, Staying up all night if you have to. Making sure the job gets done. Right? That's kind of the story of the Bronzans. See, Jesus may live in my heart, but Grandpa lives in my bones. Hard work is what defines us. And so, no one's ever said this. And, and if you ask my parents or any of the members of my family, no one would say this. But the reality is that we so value, we so prize that hard work, that there may be ways in which we don't experience grace. I'll give you an example, briefly. Um, you never want to have lunch with me on a Sunday afternoon. And I'll tell you why. I'll tell you all the things that I got wrong in my sermon. <laughs> Pray for my wife if you think of her Sunday afternoons. It's terrible to be married to me. Because I hold so highly, well, gosh, I should have said this. I should have said that. Oh, the illust it wasn't as funny as I thought it was. That Venn diagram I thought was hilarious. Everybody didn't think so. <laughs> and that story gets replayed over and over in my head, reverberates in my heart. How do we fix things? How do we make them better? We work harder, longer, more committed. See, I struggle. I struggle. I'm going to confess to you, I struggle with grace. I really do. And I think there may be times when I can, I can preach it, but boy, I don't always feel it. I don't know about anybody else, because I have so deeply resonating in my heart, work harder. And that's the problem that the Galatians are facing. They're asking that question, are you my mother? Are you my mother? Is it Sarah or is it Hagar? And Paul says, you're living like your mother is Hagar. Like there's something you've got to do. Take matters into your own hands. Don't wait for God. M make it work. 
And every impulse within us that tells us we aren't there yet, every impulse within us that tells we have to work harder to achieve more, to accomplish more, that is living in the lineage of Hagar and not Sarah. See, Paul says, you're living in a different family tree. Here's what it says on Ancestry.com. I've got the results from 23andMe. You are part of Sarah's family, not Hagar's. You're children of a promise. How desperately we need one another, friends. This is Paul's point in Galatians, that we are part of a new family. Not only have we been saved, not only have we been justified, not only are we being sanctified, we are adopted as brothers and sisters in a new family of faith. And it's only in that family of faith that we are forgiven and free. How desperately we need one another, not just sitting next to each other on Sunday morning in rows, but gathered together during the week in circles. Because it's so easy for us to live out an old story, isn't it? To live out those stories that we've heard about how we have to work harder, but we have to be more committed, how deeply we need one another, to call to one another, to remind one another that we get to live in that upper quadrant. Not relying upon our performance, but living out of gratitude for the promise. And only when we live out of the gratitude of that promise, only when we know who is our mother, can we live free, can we live forgiven. So, this morning, who are you helping live a new story in God's family? Who is it that you're helping to live that new story, not of their old family lineage, but their new adopted family? Who is it that you are helping live into that new story? And who is helping you live in that new story? May we be and even more so become a community that helps each other live out of our true family history, our true lineage, our true heritage. May we know who our mother is. God, we give you thanks for this word, this passage, challenging though it is. Help us not only to hear it, but to feel it, to welcome it, to receive it, to absorb it, that we need not be people of performance, but we can be people of the promise. God, this is so difficult for us. We live in a culture that will tell us the opposite. That we are lacking, and it is up to us. Remind us that it is up to you. And because of what you've done in Jesus, we have a whole new family history. We have a whole new ancestry. We have a whole new lineage. May we live there as your family. As your people. Amen.